Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast. I'm Dave Rome, and this week is just two of us. I'm joined by Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland. Hey, Ronan. Hey, Dave. Uh, regular episode now, and yeah, if you haven't already caught it, we did uh, our annual uh, awards episode, first time for the Geek Warning Podcast, and I think it was a bit of fun. So check it out, hear what we loved, what we hated, what we found weird, what we found useless, uh, <laughs> and what caused uh, a flurry of angry emails. wasn't useless, it was meh. Oh yeah, meh was the award, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, well, before we jump in, I just wanted to remind everyone that Escape Collective exists for its members and by its members. And yeah, if you haven't already joined the growing group of, of members that uh, are engaged in our Discord and uh, have access to all of our content and support everything we do, uh, then please consider joining. So at the moment, we have a sale uh, that runs over the Christmas break that will get you a free t-shirt if you become a member of Escape Collective. So that's if you buy an annual membership. Uh, if you're already a member, maybe consider buying a membership for a friend and then cheekily keeping the t-shirt for yourself. Uh, so yeah, that's escapecollective.com forward slash Christmas, and that'll get you to that uh, special sale. Thank you for your support. Ronan. Should we uh, start with uh, the biggest news of the week, which is UCI has done some UCI things. What's going on here? While not uncontroversial, it seems, based on what they're telling us, that they they were justified in a new rule that they've brought. Well, several new rules, but I think the headline one last week was a forthcoming ban, or first of all, a restriction, which will lead to an outright regulation against the extreme inward inclination of brake levers on mm. your handlebars. Uh, effective, well, from what I understand, this is going to be effective throughout the 2024 season that the UCI will be clamping down on just how far pro riders can angle their levers inwards. And for 2025, then, they will have, by that point, developed a setup standard along with manufacturers, uh, outside of which, you know, if you fall then outside of that setup guidance, then... You know, you'll not be permitted to start the race or, or whatever it is. For next year, it seems like they're going to use this newly developed jig that will effectively check the levers. It won't check levers angle, but it'll check how offset it is versus the, the drop section of the handlebar. Um, and if, you're, you know, if your lever is too far inward of your drop section, then that's not going to be permitted. I do have to stress the sort of drawing or sketch or design that we've seen of this new tool isn't the final model that the UCI have decided they will use. This is like a work in progress. This is what they yeah. have so far. Yeah, it was a very basic 3D printed kind of uh, model. And how do you think that model or how do you think that measurement that they're proposing will work with fled handlebars, given that fled handlebars have started to hit the world tour? Well, before I can answer that, I think I need to first of all explain the UCI's rationale here. And, and the rationale that they've given is that they have identified safety concerns based on levers being basically you know angled too far in uh, one of the safety concerns is that riders braking capacity is limited when the levers are at such an extreme angle and the other one is that actually these brake levers are not designed to be mounted to the handlebars especially carbon handlebars in that position and as such that is causing stress failures on carbon handlebars which could have sort of catastrophic consequences should your your handlebar break and one of the examples i heard i think it was adam hansen given was say you've got your levers angled too far in and you sprint 
for a KOM point or something on a climb using your hoods, you stress the bottom section of your drops where the lever is attached. You don't really know at the time because you're using the hoods, not the drops, but then you come down the other side and you go to sprint for a finish line and you try to sprint in the drops on a on a stressed or, or a compromised uh, handlebar and that breaks, that could then you know lead to a crash that sure. actually involves lots of people. If the concern is levers being mounted incorrectly and flare drops allow riders to adopt these extreme lever angles on handlebars that are designed to accommodate them, mm-hmm. then going by that rationale, the UCI shouldn't have an issue. But something tells me they might still have an issue. And so the question <laughs> over flared handlebars sort of re- remains, I think it's, uh, you know, will that lead to a, a clampdown on sort of how flared your handlebars can be on the road? I'm not sure. I know a lot of pros that I spoke to were sort of conveying that they actually really don't like extremely flared handlebars uh, in the bunch because what often ends up happening is that a rider and his bike and his hands and his shoulders and everything can fit through a gap but yep. the flare on the handlebars yeah. can't. Yeah, and that makes that, perfect that's sense. That's leading to a lot of crisis and that. So yeah, for um, sure. So it's a difficult one to answer. Yeah, technically speaking, with this new jig, if you had a flared handlebar, you could have the lever straight and relative to the drop of the handlebar, and it would still be angled, mm. you know, significantly inwards versus a straight line through the center of the bike. But it would pass this jig test. So I think that's why that jig isn't really finalized yet. It's because there are sort of glaring loopholes in, in how it'll work. Yeah, I mean, traditionally in, in pack racing, you yeah you're in the drops and sort of that's your defensive position, right? You've got your handlebars covered. So if yeah, if you're in in the hoods, which is now like you know the most aerodynamic position to be in, uh, yeah, your flared handlebar would be sitting proud of that, and you you have a, a a wider hooking area to you know come down on. So uh, yeah, I can totally understand the fears around uh, flared handlebars, and and yeah, it certainly crossed my mind. Like I, I don't know if I'd want flared handlebars in a crit for that example. So. Uh, mm-hmm. For that reason, I so. think it comes back to again. It depends on the you know how flared the flare is. The, just the same as with lever inclination, a little bit of inward angle. What might be extreme by some standards, maybe moderate by others. You know, uh, uh, there there probably has to be a line there somewhere, especially if we're talking about potentially compromising your carbon handlebars. Which to me, I run my levers perfectly straight. It's the only way that feels right to me. It's nothing to do with aesthetics or it's not really even anything to do with safety for me really it's just i prefer the feeling mm. of a straight set of levers so setting the actual lever band aside doesn't really affect me i'm sort of meh about whether they come or go or stay or go or whatever the bigger thing about the news that came out last week for me was that the uci in a document that we have seen that was presented to walter teams and directors and mechanics last week they have highlighted work that they've done with the WFSGI, which is the World Federation for Sporting Goods and Industry, failures that they have identified caused in handlebars by this lever setup. And while I appreciate that the UCI at that point could not have come out and said, look, we have found these issues with so-and-so's handlebars breaking because of these lever setups, what I can't for the life of me get past though is I strongly believe they should have come out with some sort of statement saying, we are currently investigating you know, lever angle, what potential issues that might cause. Yeah. Be aware, we have seen it cause issues with yeah. carbon handlebars. If you're running this setup, at least check your handlebars aren't compromised. Because at the moment, it, it seems like this information has effectively leaked out. And mm-hmm. the UCI still hasn't come out and said, 
By the way, if you're running this setup with carbon handlebars, you should check this thing because this could yeah. cost you yeah, your life. Yeah, a safety concern that, yeah, they, mm. yeah, haven't been public on until, yeah, leaked document. The other thing there is that we're not talking about an official recall here. The UCI doesn't need to mm. go through recall channels, right? Like, it's just a general safety notice, regardless of the brand. That Yeah, so I completely agree. It, it's crazy that this was brought to the attention of manufacturers and riders effectively through a leaked document by the media. So, yeah, I think- Not the, just the media, but yours truly, Escape Collective. Thank you, Ronan. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the, the public service we need. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I, I think uh, from what I've heard from uh, a number of mechanics, including some some tech reps from from drivetrain brands, is that uh, the bigger concern here was that those extreme angles are actually it's beyond the the design scope of the levers, and therefore mm-hmm. it causes a kink in the hose. So you actually you have the potential to break, basically uh, break your brakes, and uh, I think it's that for me might be the the more common concern here. Uh, and yeah, if it's not kinking the hose, then it's it's basically jamming the the hose nut and the the barb and olive at an angle that they weren't intended to be at. So they're then under yeah, that hose is basically being pulled at a weird angle. Um, so there yeah, where there hasn't been hose kinks, there has been hose leaking as well. So I think that is enough reason here to to say hey, there's a problem here. Let's pull back those mm. angles a bit. Do but you yeah. know they've like in the pamphlets and uh literature that you get with levers when they when they come in a box and you're mm. you know before you fit them to the bike does it say what angle they should be at what angle they shouldn't be at i i'm, I'm thinking i'm thinking it probably has something in there about i can't remember off the top of my head there normally is that mm. sort of stuff but i don't know maybe this is an unintended design you you know usage case that they haven't factored for that mm. uh yeah i i don't have the answer to that one someone can let us know in the comments if it's in the literature but uh, it's hard now because uh, both brands just come with like QR codes to get to the service manual. So you're less likely to look at the service uh, manual. I want to correct myself as well because I said I'm sort of meh to whether they come or go. I, I have to agree that I did find, because uh, I have tried it loads of times, the sort of the N-word setting. And what I did find was that it was initially felt more comfortable when I got out of the saddle. Though I, I don't like the, I don't feel like I've got the same leverage on the bike when I get out of the saddle. But actually... One of the other things that I did notice is just coming back to me now. It's a long time since I've tried it because I've just decided it's not for me. But one of the things that was noticeable to me was my braking capacity wasn't really affected. Uh, and quite often you'll see riders who use the levers tilted all the way into these extreme angles. They'll quite often be riding in the drops more so than the hoods. And so, you know, perhaps their ability to grab the brakes there isn't all that effective. But where I found the difference was if I was in the hoods, my ability to react and get on the brakes quickly. Uh, if something like popped out in front of me or I needed to break and for whatever reason I needed to break in a hurry, I didn't have the same reaction time. It was like my wrists, whatever way my wrists are, they were loaded up in yeah, such a way that I just couldn't position. pull the brakes quickly. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's if so, you if you were to close your eyes, shake your hands, put them out in front of you, your hands aren't gonna go into that angle naturally. Right? They're much more not, not much for more me straight yeah. through the wrist. So unless you've had a history of like broken wrists and you probably really should have had surgery 10 years ago then i don't think well, you're naturally going to fall into that i've angle. had one wrist that was broke twice so i don't know if that's got something to do with it but the other one's fine and it doesn't work for it either so. yeah yeah um I, I yeah i don't know i think this the other thing is, is if you're in the hoods and you uh are tired and you're fatigued and you hit a pothole in the road the hood design is kind of intended there's like you know the the knob and the height of the hood is kind of intended to 
kind of act as a catch for you a little bit. Like there's a bit of, uh, yeah, your hand sits behind the highest point. Whereas if you've got your hoods extremely tilted in and you hit that bump, your hands are going forward of the hoods. So mm-hmm. uh, to me, that's the scariest part here. You know, ignore the inability to break, ignore the broken handlebars, ignore the kinked brake hoses. It's just simply like with a little bit of fatigue or maybe sweaty hands, you're not wearing gloves, uh, which- Because that happens on every ride. Yes. Well, Hmm. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's just that I've crashed a bike from being bumped off the hoods. And to me, this position would just be infinitely worse in that regard. So That's one thing I think the UCI haven't addressed here, whether whether they are addressing the inward inclination of the levers. Hmm. Quite often what you'll see that coupled with is actually levers that are like significantly below the the sort of level of the handlebar or, or yeah. effectively pointing down. Yeah. And so, you know, in order to adopt these aero positions, which anybody who listens to this podcast will know well, I'm all in favor of anything more aerodynamic. But what does scare the aero out of me is uh when you see <laughs> riders who their their hands are basically hovering over the hoods rather yeah. than holding the hoods. And that's yeah. for the reasons you just mentioned, that is one thing that I don't like to see. Yeah. To me, that's more dangerous than puppy paws, you know, mm. or, or as dangerous as puppy paws because you're in that position for so long, for so many hours, fatigue's going to set in. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's just because you're in that position for so much longer and you're in that position with others. To me, that's, yeah, enough reason there. I think we can, I think we can move on. But yeah, it does sound like- We should like, get a t-shirt. Scares the arrow out of me. That is a very good t-shirt. Uh <laughs> completely uh, we'll, agree we'll, Andy, we'll bring it to our t-shirt get people. on that yes to the t-shirt team right away uh before you move on there were a couple of other uci rules brought in last week one of them revolves around the whole no pun intended sorry i did not mean that at all but the uci's wheel approval process mm. uh which will be updated effective first of january more or less seems to bring the uci's wheel approval process in line with iso testing so that seems to be a well-received thing, although a lot of manufacturers I've been speaking to are like, this is good. It would have been nice to hear about it from the UCI rather than some random tech writer. Mm. Um, but anyway. Not that, just any random tech writer, Ronan from Escape Collective. Thank you. I, I teed it up <laughs> and you knocked it out of the park. <laughs> the other thing banned for next, uh, officially banned, has already sort of been phased out, but um, you know those number pockets that you have in the back of road racing mm-hmm. skin suits? Uh, they're gone. Uh, okay. You can still use them in time trials and team time trials and that, but not in bunch events. Sorry, Rafa. Uh, uh, was it Rafa? It was no pens were the sort of famous ones. Oh, I thought Rafa had a special speed suit that had a, a pocket, a translucent a, a pocket. Lot in of it. The, a lot of the brands had gone that way in recent time, but yeah, I think okay. it was no pens are credited with that gotcha. invention. I want to credit it to Sam Benito, who took poly pockets, you know, one of the like, wee plastic sheets you can put mm. an A4 sheet into for yeah. a holder, took one of those to a seamstress and had the seamstress. Whoa. So the poly pockets into a skin suit. I think as far back as like 2010 or something. Like yeah, that. that's... Um, not for an aero game, but just because he really couldn't be bothered pinning his numbers on all the time. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. The other thing that the UCI sort of felt the need to clarify last week was sort of how well bottles can be integrated into time trail frames, which is, from what I understand, a, a growing trend actually with road bikes also the cannondale super six evil that i tested sort of had yeah somewhat not not integrated but at least matched profile yeah Um, and i believe there's a few more like that on the way also and then for some reason in reminding us that items of clothing may not modify the morphology of the rider 
they decided to use a photo of the triathlete Joe Skipper with copious amounts of hydration on his on his bike. Mm. Um, not not sure what the link there is between the extra bottles above and below his arms and that, and the UCI rule. But uh, anyway, we were reminded: can't change your shape using fancy clothing. It was a big week. UCI what if rules. it's like really really compressive and you're just a little bit out of race weight? Is that um, changing your shape? That's the kind of question you don't want to ask if you don't really want the answer. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, I guess I won't be wearing, uh, what do you call it? Body wear. All right. Well, should we move on to what's on our mind? Uh, yeah, I think so. All right. We'll sum up what's, what's new in the world of tech uh, at the end of the episode. Uh, but yeah, let's jump into what's on our mind. I'm keen to get your take on this, Ren. Do we need a better mm-hmm. name for endurance road bikes? Because the category used to be very, very popular. Now it's kind of got, uh, I would say, uh, associations with, with not being uh, all that desirable for, for people that should be on them. I had mentioned this on my Instagram a couple of weeks ago in relation to the Domani that I have uh, mm-hmm. that has been all sorts of bikes bar an endurance bike for me this year from a race bike to a gravel bike to um oh Roubaix bike all sorts but I'd never actually done like a huge endurance ride on it mm. uh it's a wonder bike now that's what it is and at the time I thought like these things are so versatile we need a better name but actually a trip to the local bike shop well earlier today actually McCombie Cycles in Belfast and um, we were just discussing the guys in there they're like giant specialized Panarello dealers. Uh, this isn't an ad for them, I promise. This is relevant to this. <laughs> uh, but one What's of them just got the new giant. Um, one of them just got the new giant Defy. And he was like, this endurance bike is exactly what I need. Now, he's a former racer, just prefers to sort of more relaxed jump, you know, and the, the greater versatility that the bike offers. And then we we're talking about the Dogma X and how that fits into the same sort of category. And I left that conversation thinking, maybe endurance is the right word but it's just not enough on its own and we need like endurance race and endurance versatility and endurance i i, I don't think this is really helping the the issue that we have here because fundamentally Maybe. it's a marketing issue we're talking about right like probably like a giant defy for example or savella caledonia or a bmc road machine uh you know the list goes on all of these bikes are, are rather fantastic and are typically speaking the right bike for most people you see out on the roads uh but for whatever reason people still want to buy the race bike that they see in the tour de france and that's not the bike being used i think the problem comes down to that old sort of mantra that you race on sunday sell on monday Mm. or buy on monday or whatever it is it comes from autosport when you turn on your tv on a sunday and you see tade pagaccia riding a v4 rs or you see bernal on a dogma f or al philippe on a sl8 when you go into the bike shop the next day, that's the bike that, like, for, for us geeks, this is a geek warning show, uh, we're aware of many other options that exist. But if you're, uh, let's say, a more normal person, you might only know of the bikes that you see in the Tour de France. And as yeah. such, you're, you're especially drawn towards those. And then when you see that coupled with the marketing that X watts faster over 40 kilometers and Maybe you think the riding that you do with the club on a Saturday and it's when it goes fast that you're under pressure and you think, well, a faster bike is going to be the better option for yeah. me. And then all of a sudden you end up on an SL8 with 
three centimeters of spacers below the stem yeah. and an, an 80, 80 mil stem. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just technically speaking, tested in the right conditions and used in the right scenarios is a faster bike than the endurance option. Yeah. But when you factor in the comfort and the greater versatility and just being less fatigued from being on a, a, a bike that's better fitted to you. Yeah. Most of us might actually go faster on the on the endurance option than the all out performance model. Yeah, I mean the stack on these bikes forces people into a position that their body's not really capable of holding, and therefore their power delivery is compromised uh, and their comfort. Right, even as far as like their tolerance to to injury. I mean, there's you know there's so many reasons here as to why the vast majority of race bikes on the market are too low for people. But yeah, I, I agree with you. your mention of uh, spacer use there. I think fundamentally, like I see every day I'm out on the roads, I see people running three to four centimeters of spaces, whatever the max height of spaces is for that bike. Yeah, they're, you know, sometimes they've tilted the handlebar up in order to get the hoods higher, but they're on a top end race bike. And to me, that's like, if you're having to do that, you are on the wrong bike. There is a better bike out there for you. And it is called an endurance road bike. Call me cynical or skeptical or whatever, but. I think that's a large part of the reason why we're seeing the likes of the Dogma X now that is effectively mm. the front end of a Dogma F, but higher and slightly shorter. Yeah. Why have we got an SL8 Roubaix now? Well, because it's an SL8, but it's a Roubaix, which is yeah. maybe more in line with what yeah. the majority of customers will be more comfortable on. And I want to be clear, this is not a, a slate on, on the riders who are riding these bikes and needing three centimeters of spacers. Sure. It's... I'm. I'm in. It's an industry I, I, problem. I, yeah. No, I don't even think it's an industry problem. I could oh. go down a huge rabbit hole. I actually think it's a UCI rules problem. Uh, yeah. And okay. that the the pros have to ride the same bikes as we can buy in the shops. And then yeah, you either have it one or two ways. Either the pro is on the wrong bike and the customer is on the right bike, or the customer is on the wrong bike and the pro is on the right bike. Like my Tom Pedcock and my dad are around about the same height, but I don't think they should be on the same bikes. <laughs> yeah, I'd say not. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a really good point, actually. And it's uh, it's unfortunately, you know, when it comes to achieving mass manufacturing scale, it, yeah, the the likes of Trek, who used to offer two different head tube heights, you know, it just doesn't make a, a great business case these days. So, you know, they they merge them into one. They met in the middle. If the commercialization rule disappeared, that that might not actually change. But mm. I don't think the commercialization rule helps in and effectively forcing that what the pros ride has to be sold in shops. Uh, yeah. Because if it has to be sold in shops and the pros have to ride it, then somebody has to pay for it and that's yes. customers. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do, yeah, I think it's just worth reminding people that rarely the race bike you see being raced by the pros is the right choice for people that aren't racing. Uh, mm. I think it's, yeah, I think, and, and it comes back to the, the marketing side of things is I think back like 10, 15 years ago when endurance bikes were the top selling platform like they were the bike everyone was buying walking to a bike shop and buying that was like the early days of the specialized route bay the you know trek demane came after uh you had a giant defy and when i think about it we were all on rim brakes and the race bikes had too limited tire clearance for paris roubaix use so all the pros would ride those endurance bikes for paris roubaix and therefore all the marketing materials from the brands could be like, this is the bike that won, you know, Hell of the mm-hmm, North. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is such a cool bike. It got ridden at Paris-Roubaix and people are like, oh, you know, it got used by the pros at the coolest one day race ever. I'll buy that. Fortunately, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen anymore because race bikes are so versatile and tire clearance that the pros aren't swapping bikes anymore. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a very good point as well. I mean, 
be a little bit positive here for a second. I I do wonder if top end race bikes and pro geometries will sort of start verging towards the endurance setup a bit more I as we sort of realize the benefits of you don't necessarily have to be as long and as low as possible. I think they did previously, and uh, enough pros complained that they 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 went the other way again. Uh, like I'm thinking, mm. Cervelo for a while had made all their bikes quite tall and stack and uh, really good for punters. But I remember a lot of pros having to run negative 17 mil stems on a size down frame, and still, you know, you'd hear complaints about it. Uh, but yeah, I think like even if you look at Cannondale, for example, Cannondale to me have raised their stack heights over the years, and I think that's a a really positive move. Yeah, I mean, there's still some very aggressive bikes on the market, but I think generally they've trended a little bit higher. Unfortunately, it's still a balance, right? It's it's a balance between the demands of the pros of what they're going to race on because teams spending millions of dollars to have their top, top you know, famous pros riding these bikes don't want that pro to look silly on a, a bike that's three sizes too small for them in order to achieve <laughs> the, the fit they want. So, yeah, I think there's still this... As you say, I think the, the, the UCR rule is, is forcing a little bit of too much compromise here. Just to clarify, that, I think as we become more aware of the sort of long-term potential for like things like iliac artery syndrome and uh, even just being able to adopt a more aerodynamic position from having your handlebars higher, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that might see the pros actually think, well, maybe the most aggressive setup maybe isn't the fastest. I'm a bit conflicted in this myself because the Cannondale that I reviewed was higher on the front end. The, you know, the stack was, uh, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, was like 10 mil higher than the, what I thought was around about the average for my size in that sort of space. Uh, but then I had the Ridley Falcon on review just before that, and it was significantly lower than I would have expected mm. for my size. And I'm not going to lie, that felt fantastic when you get on it initially and you just slam the stem all the way down and it just feels low and aggressive and fast, all of that. I think longer term, if I was to pick one of the two positions, not one of the two bikes, but one of the two positions, uh, I'd be erring on the side of caution and going for the higher setup. Speaking as someone who doesn't mind an aggressive position. Yep. Uh, I think, yeah, a, a minor tangent from this, but I think it, uh, you know, recent years we've seen the endurance category kind of, yeah, the the, the label kind of lose, uh, lose appeal. So a lot of brands have started to call these all road bikes. And I, I also don't think that's the answer. This customer still wants a true dedicated road bike. They don't want a bike that's kind of softened between road and gravel or made heavier as a result of it or whatever. I think they still want a pure road bike. And that's probably, unfortunately, it's probably why a lot of people have been forced to buy pure road bikes that are now race geometry when actually what they want is a pure road bike with endurance geometry. So I mm. think, thankfully, we've still got like Cervelo Caledonia, although it's not as upright as I think a lot of people need still. Uh, but yeah, like Giant Defy is another, you know, in that same sort of Cervelo Caledonia space where it, it's still a pure road bike. And I think that's, yeah, we just need more of that. Uh, apparently my Dogma X review bike is still on the way. Mm. Uh, it is going Excited to try that because I think that is a pure road bike with cool. endurance geometry. And I'll so. repeat it for the, the 40th time. Specialized, Athos, should have made the stack higher on that bike. Would have sold more of them. I don't think I've ever seen one not being used with like almost a full stack of spaces, at least on the roads here. And there's a lot of them on the roads here. Uh, I think there's still a, a big, big opportunity to have a bike, that bike with a higher stack. I think that's where the market is at the moment. You know, Bar going to worlds or something that I've never seen an Athos in the wild. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Got to come uh, to Sydney. They're everywhere. 
Well, I, I think that leads into the sort of opinion that I was just conveying on riders riding performance road bikes, isn't that the group ride that I sort of go out with most often here, the Athos would be quite a nice bike. Admittedly, if it had higher stack in that, it would be better mm-hmm. for uh, a lot of those riders. But what you're seeing is SL7s and Madones and Super 6s and nobody in the group races. Um, no, not, not saying it's a right or wrong bike for them or whatever, but I'm just thinking endurance bikes. And Dogmas in that as well, you'd see the, those in the group. And again, I'll go back to Dogma X. I think what that that type of bike now and the Defy going forward also, what that type of bike offers is somebody who wants the bike that they've seen on TV, but with a, a rider-friendly geometry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I actually think, I mean, I'm, I'm normally pretty hard on Minarello, but I actually think they've got the right tact here, which is to use the Dogma branding on a bike that, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, because the customer associates Dogma with being the top end, the race model. Yeah, but have that branding on a, on a bike that isn't the F. So, yeah, I, I think that is the right approach. Aesthetically, I, I don't know if it's the right approach. I just but, wish the X wasn't yeah. there. <laughs> the what? The X. The X, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll stop. I, I almost said something positive, so I'll leave it there. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what else is on your mind? Crank lengths. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go back to this topic again of, of uh, the sort of stock sizing that we get on bikes. And, and actually, I'm not going to go into the stock sizing we get delivered <laughs> on bikes. What I want to ask is, Watch up have just come out with, albeit, you know, aero focused, it's pretty heavy, uh, but they've come out with their new cranks offering a super narrow Q factor. They're four SRM parameters, so I think they're called Kratos SRM cranks or something to that effect. But what they have within them, and they're not the only ones to do this, but what these new watch up cranks have is like a flip chip mm-hmm. um, for crank length. And you can, technically speaking, if you, there's two different crank lengths options. There's like long or short, but effectively what you can get is anything from a, if I remember right off the top of my head, anything from 155 crank length right the way up to 175 yep. in, in one or two cranks uh, with various flip chips. And mm. I'm sort of wondering on my mind, will we ever get to the point where actually the mass-reduced crank sets like the Shimano's, the Campags, the SRAMs in future, might that be a way of giving us more option to get the crank length we want on our stock builds? It's a nice thought. I really can't see it ever happening for the <laughs> complexity and the, I guess, yeah, another area for the, of failure, another area of, of creaking. Uh, it, it is a nice, a nice concept though. Um, I, mm. I, am I right in thinking it was Look that was sort of the first major brand Look, to do something They had like the this? wee rotatable Yeah, which then wage, was used by yeah. SRM. Yeah, SRM had it. Yeah, I mean, that was probably as prominent as I ever saw that uh, such a design come. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't see it. Uh, unfortunately, being adopted by by SRAM or Shimano or Campac. Like I have to admit, I didn't really see it either. But I, I kind of just wanted to mention it here on the off chance that somebody somewhere might pick <laughs> up on it, and <laughs> ten years from now it might be an option. But yeah, yeah, like uh, uh, probably worth mentioning also things like the rotor Aldo carbon cranks. You can like replace the entire crank arm, retain your spider, replace the crank arm. I have a set of those cranks. I have a 155, a 165, and a 170 set of crank arms, and you can interchange those, mm. but it's significantly more expensive to replace an entire crank arm than a flip chip for a, absolutely. For a pedal spindle. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think Easton might be in the same space where you can replace just crank arms. I think SRAM not because the, the spindle's integrated into the, the left 
crank arm. Shimano not because the spindle's integrated into the right crank arm. So Campagnolo not because the left and right crank arm's integrated into the <laughs> left and right spindle. But yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think that, yeah, you're right. There are options there, but no, I, unfortunately, I don't see this idea hitting true mainstream reach. So, Laverack and Aston Martin can make your crank length exactly the length you want. Mm. Not quite the same, but it can give you, isn't, isn't the entire end section of the crank 3D printed in that bike we discussed a few weeks ago? So, yeah, yeah, and just in that's case way to go. deliberating over color wasn't enough, you can now get to the nearest <laughs> millimeter with your crank length. Uh, one, one can, but hope. Yep. A nice one to hope for. Should we do a pick one? I might be rather quiet on this one, Ronan, but I want you to pick one uh, road tire. Should we qualify uh, this? Should we, should we clarify it? Should we say, should we do one um, clean show, one tubeless? Should we just do one tubeless? What do you reckon? I, I reckon you've kind of, you've, You've sent me up the stream without a, a paddle here by, by leaving me on my own with this one. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's such I'll a contentious subject. I think my justification for this, although a lot of people might disagree with the tire, I think my justification means that my opinion is here by fact. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with the GP5000 STR, um, which seems like an obvious choice. But the reason I will choose it is that having not done rolling resistance or aero testing on the tire myself i am still confident enough in and what i have seen what i have heard to use this tire in racing scenarios when i'm sort of optimizing as much as i can i'm confident that it is a fast rolling tire the aero benefits of it it's going to come down more to how it integrates with the rim than any sort of tread pattern or whatever but the reason i lean more towards that is because some of my training roads you know bar the hell in north of Pirate bay some of the roads that I ride on are as crap and as dirty and as broken um, and puncture prone as you're going to find. And touch wood, uh, I use GP5000 STRs almost always. Don't recall the last time I had a puncture. Oh, um, that's a dangerous statement. That it is. That's I. I that was I, very foolish. I only made. I only made that statement because I have to back up the the pick one that I'm making. Otherwise, yeah. I never would have said such. You're a gonna have to thing. have a. You're gonna have to find a new tire after that statement. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just gonna have to stop riding outdoors. Yeah. But, uh, so that's my justification. Um, I know a lot of people complain about getting punctures in those tires. I don't know if I change my tires more often, or if I clean them more often, or if I. I'm better at avoiding crap on the roads. I don't know, yeah. but I don't have issues sure. with puncturing those tires. And to the extent that I actually used a GP5000 TT, which is like lighter and faster again for that like length of Ireland time trial that I did. And it was sort of the big question mark for me was, is this too prone to puncturing? Am I going to lose time by puncturing? And effectively read that thing for 580k again over some crappy roads without issue and rode it quite a bit after that on the time trial bike again without issue so probably going to puncture on every time trial next season though i haven't said that but yeah right now at least that's my tire and i'm sticking with it uh, I, have, I have a good experience with others but obviously i have to mention also you know in terms of grip and cornering and just general yeah. confidence i get a good sensation with those tires i tried the new vittorias earlier this year they didn't provide me I, again the experience I've had with the Vittorias is that they don't stand up to our roads as well. 
yeah. um, and the new ones also had the same experience in that the bit of riding that it did in those. And when I say it, but it was actually a considerable chunk. It was sort of, you know, testing those tires. But again, they were noticeably cut up and did have a puncture in my time using those. And I didn't have the same confidence. Me personally, I didn't have the same confidence in throw, throwing them into or really banging them over the same way as I would do in a STR. Um, the I'm also trying the new Goodyear Eagle F1s at the moment. Haven't really had a chance to do much wet riding in them at the moment, but otherwise they've been they've been quite nice. Um, mm-hmm. Haven't haven't ridden them for long enough yet to really stand over them and say they're as puncture resistant as I find the Contes to be. But so far, so good. Uh, I'm gonna second your recommendation there. That is my top go to tire as well. And with road tires, I kind of I think road tires are like this sliding scale of what you're willing to trade off. I think a lot of brands like Vittoria and Goodyear and Schwalbe and Continental and all the all the leading brands, uh, they I think they're all offering a very competitive product, but it's a matter of what attributes you want to invest in. Uh, so, you know, some have lower rolling resistance, but then that comes at the cost of, say, uh, sidewall durability or sidewall puncture protection. Uh, you know, others have great wet weather grip, but that then means typically means a softer tread, which means it cuts more easily. And I think that is, they're forever trying to find the best balance of all of those attributes. Uh, and I agree. I think Continental, for me, does it the best as far as mm-hmm. just being a well-rounded tire that does everything good. Uh, something's great, but, you know, everything good and does it reliably for me. Whereas every time I, I try something else, there's, I feel like there's something that you're trading off. You know, yes, you might mm-hmm. be gaining ever so slight more grip in the corners but you're cutting the tire noticeably more as a result of it and uh i'm the same yeah we've got bad roads here we don't we don't necessarily have the winter riding you do but we do have tradies who like to drink on their way home and then dispose of the evidence by throwing their glass bottles out of the window uh so our roads are just littered with glass um and yeah i think that's not great for high-end race tires so yeah i definitely I, I like the ride quality of a race tire. I, I always, you know, I run race tires on my bikes, but it's, uh, yeah, for me, puncture resistance is kind of pretty high up on my list of, of attributes that I need. So, yeah, mm. so Continental's my go-to as well uh, for that reason. I have one caveat, one question, and one problem okay. with the GP5000s. Mm. The caveat is, given the price of these things, I do still have heart and mouth sort of nerves when i'm rolling over these bad roads because if you rip one it's game over like yeah. so <laughs> yeah that that's a costly problem the question is i don't recall what how they compare in terms of weight to some of the other uh tires so it's not something i've really mm. factored into that equation again for me it comes down to am i confident that it's fast enough am i confident that it is grippy enough am i confident that it's puncture resistant enough and it, it answers those three for me and the problem i have with the gp5000 str is that that transparent sidewall is not a tan sidewall, and we need a proper tan sidewall. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. That is a so, that is a very fair request, Renan. Don't think it's too much to ask. No, no. <laughs> I don't know if Victoria maybe have a, a patent on the perfect tan wall or something, but um, isn't uh the isn't there less? I might be putting my foot in my mouth here, but isn't there less puncture resistance with a a true raw tan wall? Isn't it? Yeah, it's more porous or something as it's well. It's more exposed. It? Yeah. Well, here's something different. I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's the one you wouldn't pick? I mean, that's such a such an easy thing. It's it's basically any tie that's still being made that was 
designed 15, 20 years ago, right? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I will say more so than the Vittorias, the Pirelli P0s, I just haven't been a fan of those. Um, on our roads in wet conditions, yeah, they just they haven't done it for me. Regardless in terms of, of, like, pressure in terms or, of grip or in terms of puncture resistance? Uh, in terms of grip, yeah. Puncture yeah. resistance, I haven't really had an issue, okay. but that may also be because I haven't put up with them for long enough gotcha. on a bike. I, I'll typically, I say put up with them, I don't mean it that way, but typically I'll have changed them before they've maybe had the chance to puncture. Uh, my big question there is, are we talking P0 from two years ago or the ones that are now made in Italy? Well, this is the thing, and that's why I was reluctant to answer there, is because, yeah. you know, somebody will hear me say a name and assume all those tires, and I've only tried one of Pirelli's range. Yeah. Um, in fact, the the article that you did recently, correct answers only, mm. Pirelli was one that repeatedly popped up in the comments there as, was the Centurados or something, was the like the go-to tire for, for many of the, the commenters there. So clearly, they do have their fans. Yeah, I, I, and that was why. And I, was I edited it out because <laughs> I didn't be, agree with it. Because <laughs> I, I can't comment. I, I don't know. You know, was it pre? Was it two years ago? Was it more recently? Um, I know that they were delivered on both the Dogma F and the Conlago V4S mm-hmm. that I had for review, and the Dogma F was two years ago, and the Conlago is right now. And I, I wasn't feeling like I was like dancing on ice or something like that sure. I, I just wouldn't have been rushing out to buy the same tires gotcha yeah this feels a bit unfair though to me <laughs> yeah okay um maybe maybe yeah I, I to be honest i haven't tested the latest from pirelli so i'll i'll hold judgment but uh yeah i mean for me maybe on my my list of stuff i wouldn't run is like maybe like a is it the maxis high road so the maxis high road isn't a bad tire it's actually a relatively decent all-rounder option uh but they do a time trial specific version and that i would avoid because from the rolling resistance tests i've seen on that it's not the fastest um but it is getting to be the thinnest so it's it's (laughs) quite a lot of money to spend on a tire that's almost certainly going to puncture pretty quickly so uh yeah that that comes to mind as as one i personally uh didn't use too much because i was just waiting to be on the side of the road to change tires mm. and i know that's not the purpose of it the purpose of it's a, a race day you know discipline specific but if it's high tire. rolling resistance then but yeah it's not, not doing that either you're, you're getting this ultra thin tire that seems to only then kind of be competitive with other more punctures and tires so <laughs> uh at that point i'd say that one's a meh for me i i had the maxis refuse yeah on a solid a couple of years ago mm. yeah absolutely Loved it, especially yeah. in the wet. Yeah. Well, actually, you say that uh, because I I can't remember how I ended up with a pair, but anyway, ended up with a set. Went into another local bike shop. I named the other one, so I'll name this one as well. Row Valley Cycles, and they happened to have a set that had been taken off a bike with Tamwall, mm. and I I thought it was clearly had been taken off a brand new bike, never ridden, but clearly not brand new. And I was like, well, what's the crack with those? And they're like. I can't remember. They did me some ridiculous deal on these tires. Like, if you want them, effectively just take them with you. I paid something wow. for them, but they the customer didn't want them, and I then really did want them. But those tires didn't stand up to the testing oh. that I give them all oh. that much. Um, 
that's and unfortunately as cheap as i got them i didn't get my value out of oh that's a shame yeah i was gonna say <laughs> but, i haven't run the refuse for years and years like maybe 12 years but when i did they were they were solid like i, I preferred them over like the conti gator skin and the schwab durano oh. you know double defense kind of thing that, that. i think it's i'd prefer a slap in the face and a conti gator skin but <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah, I think that's balancing none. it. Out. I think we're balancing yeah. it out there the entire. All right, picture. all right. So yeah, there you go. I think the summary of that is every brand we love also does products we hate. And that that's actually one caveat I wanted to make is that perhaps I'm slightly biased against the Pirellis because growing up, my my dad had instilled in me. He was like a loved nice cars, and he instilled in me that Pirelli P six thousands or something like that were the only tires worthy of putting on his car. And so fast forward to today, I want nothing more than to buy him a set of Pirellis. I'm confident that he's going right. to not slip in wet conditions on. Yep. And right now, can't do that based on the experience I've had so far with the Pirellis. Yep. Uh, and then also factor in the F1 nerd that I am. Um, you know, if you could get like red, yellow and white sidewalls on them to denote whether they're hard, soft or medium compounds. I mean, I, I would be all over Pirelli if things were to go that way. Yes. I would add with Pirelli is uh, perhaps we're being a little unfair because they, a lot of their tires, a lot of their their newer road tires to date have been manufactured by Hutchison. Uh, but then more recently than that, they have brought a few models in house, uh, and those are meant to be really good. So perhaps we're we're mixing Hutchison made versus in house made. I take it all back. I yeah. take it. I take it all back. You've just reminded me of the six months that I spent in Hutchinson's in 2018. Yeah, when it was like a, it wasn't even a team sponsor. It was just like the team sponsor sold bikes that had Hutchinson tires on it. And my God Almighty, every single race we did, half the team punctured out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Pirelli. I do apologize. Uh, all is forgiven <laughs> on my side. I hope you can find it within yourself to to forgive me for what I have said. Um, uh, yeah, so, and, and I lay the blame solely with Hutchinson. No, no. I mean, Pirelli's got to take a bit of the blame here because they've put their brand on tires that yeah, have been a yeah. bit hit and miss. And I think it's it's going to be a hard one for them to to regain the trust of a lot of customers with their assuming their in house tires are as good as I've heard them to be. Uh, it'll take some time to regain the trust because yeah, people have bought these tires and you know had a poor experience and yeah that's that's the risk of outsourcing your manufacturing uh but yeah i too haven't run hutchison for a few years and uh i have some fond memories of hutchison's like racing on hutchison pythons in the mountain bike world and you know 26 inch tires and in like the gold color and it was real classic kind of mountain bike tire but then i also remember like the very first ever tubeless cross tire was a hutchison uh, or the very first tubeless road tire was a Hutchison. Uh, neither of those were a good product. So <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah, it goes back to what I'm saying. Brands that we love also do stuff we hate. So <laughs> <laughs> first they give it and then they take it away. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we we upset enough brands there. Should we move on? I think we better do quickly. Yes. <laughs> Ronan, do you have a PSA for us? If. You're living in the Northern Hemisphere like I am, or you're a fan of indoor riding year-round. Uh, just a friendly reminder to check your components are not uh, in sweat's way and collecting sweat that can be corrosive to different components. And that could be especially lingering in areas like in your handlebar tape. Soaks through your handlebar tape, gets onto your handlebars, could corrode them, could result in uh, nasty failure out on the road 
which I've actually seen happen uh, about a year and a half ago on a sportif, and the rider refused to stop with one half of his handlebar broken and some seriously steep descents coming up. And despite me saying to him, you know, if one side has broken, the other side may well break as well because they've been exposed to the same amount of sweat. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, he finished the ride. Yeah, um, I, I, he showed I, you. I, I got a little bit rowdy and I had to tell him in no uncertain terms how far I wanted him away from me uh, gotcha. before the next descent. And yeah. that, that solved, the, as far as I was concerned, that solved the, the problem. But it sort of came to mind because I was doing a bit of turbo training over the weekends. Uh, I was on a time trial bike. I had forgotten the towel for the start of the session, so like threw a towel onto the bike midway through, didn't exactly get it where I thought I had put it, and when I got off the bike afterwards, with the sort of base plate that is on the time job bike that I have, there's like a little cubby hole in the front of it for holding your DI2 junction box, mm. and it was actually just like literally a puddle, maybe a couple of centimeters deep of pure sweat in this Ew. And I was glad that I spotted it there and then got it cleaned out and like got the air compressor and I blew it all out and yeah. So uh, now it's all over your wall. It, uh, no, I was, I, <laughs> I, I, I thought about that before. That's where they got a rag to cover okay. everything. So, it, but it just sort of reminded me how much sweat could well be collecting all over. I mean, you can even just see it in stem bolts and headsets yeah. and all sorts just gets destroyed. Yeah. Especially on the front end. Yeah. So yeah, I would say anyone with a trainer bike should be taking it outside every few days if if it's getting used mm. that often and probably just washing it down. Bottle cage bolts, yeah, you know, bottom brackets, everything, seats, seat posts, yeah, everything gets. It's not just the handlebars. Yeah. So um, yeah, certainly don't ignore your trainer bike. Cover it as best as you can with fresh towels and all that. But that only does so much. You really should be washing down your bike because. If your handlebar tape smells, then you've already left it too long and uh, <laughs> your handlebar's probably getting damaged underneath. So, um, Like if I, if I have a dedicated indoor bike or if I know I'm going to be training indoors for a sustained period, usually remove the handlebar tape. Interesting. Just, okay. Like for dedicated indoor bikes especially, is like it's only going to collect sweat, stink, mm-hmm. be yucky to touch. You know, Especially in the days when I would have been doing like two sessions in a day and stuff, it's just, wow. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just a, a Northern Hemisphere thing this time of year. I mean, you no, know, yeah, you know, Southern yeah. Hemisphere, like if in Australia we're ha- having days of 40 plus degrees and if you've got a an indoor bike with, you know, nice fan set up and air conditioning, that's probably the favorable option. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, everyone listening, just remember your sweat is killing your bike. So you can do something about it. Yeah, um, I mean, like those like sweat catching thongs that loop around the seat posts and the handlebars, they're actually worth their weight and sweat they do a good job and then just draping a towel over your handlebars heat training's all the rage right now so there are times where you're actually inducing quite a lot of sweating but otherwise you know if you're sweating that much perhaps you know sort of have a look at your fans and that as well are they strong enough are you actually cooling yourself enough because you know that's not just well it's seriously detrimental to performance but it's actually you know, it just diminishes the quality of your training and all sorts if you're if you're overheating. So says the person um, that wore a heat suit. I, I did say first of all, it's all the red, so you might actually want to be doing that. Yeah, but- yeah. This this topic's making me queasy because I'm just kind of remembering pulling out a bottom bracket and like a pool of water coming out, and then being told that that bike was actually just an indoor bike. <laughs> Uh, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, uh, that bottom bracket was not in good condition. Yeah. Anyway, let's. Uh, 
is there not an argument for just leaving it in there? It would be extra resistance. Save your smart trainer the network. Oh, so gross. <laughs>
I'm kind of wondering, was that, did I partially induce a problem here in that with all that aero testing I was doing, they're swapping them back and forth between bikes. They were like back and forth between bikes like six times a day and mm. like literally maybe 75 to 100 zero offsets in one day alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, did I, did I bring this on myself here? Yeah. Um, but just, actually, it just reminded me. They didn't break. They just uh, quit. They just quit. They <laughs> were overworked. The hours are too long. <laughs> uh, uh, I actually broke one of the pods once. I was doing a gravel event and mm. uh, I was using the road version of the pedals and a random rogue stone flew up from a wheel in front. Um, where did it hit? It managed to squeeze between the crank and my shoe oh, and wow. hit the power pod straight on wow. and broke the power pod. So getting rid of it is actually, a. I would hazard a guess that that has not happened all that many times. You'd need to be very unlucky, but... Um, it actually, there is a, an other benefit to getting rid of that pod. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like off-road, you're going to smash that pod. Uh, at least on a mountain bike, you're going to smash that pod on a rock. So uh, yeah, certainly using that design converted for mountain bike just didn't make sense to me. Probably get away with it on gravel, but I think eventually you, you're asking for trouble. So mm. yeah, it's cool. Anyway, uh, it's a product I look forward to. Hopefully, yeah, we see more global uh, availability coming in the new year. We'll update you all on that. Ronan, there's a new indoor trainer from Tax. What is it? Is it an indoor trainer or is it something from Star Wars? I'm not sure, but hmm. Tax have put their name on it either way, uh, <laughs> and they've decided to call it the Neo 3M. It's yeah, it's it's the new Tax Neo. It's got some pretty impressive stats. Uh, I mean, you've got you know the usual. It's a direct drive trainer. Um, it goes simulates up to 25 percent gradient. Uh, I think it's up to like 2200 watts or something, but who actually hits that? Nobody really does. But then it's, and it's still got the sort of virtual flywheel that Tax have used in their, their trainers for a while there. It has the new motion plates that we've seen them come out with as an add-on last year, the year before for the, the, the Neo. It's now built into the trainer and you can toggle them on and off. So you've, you've, you've got like a, a bit of a motion plate built into the, the trainer it also comes with like LEDs that give you a, you know a quick reference to what power zone you're in, and then the set, the sort of standout feature to me was the fact that you can use it without it plugged into the wall, so without power you won't uh, get that LED okay. feature, yeah. but it can like power gotcha. itself. Yeah. Um. So anybody like looking to do proper warm ups, you know, at, at events or something like that, or maybe they just want to train in a different part of the garden, you don't have sure. reach. Or maybe you like the minimalist look in your. In your apartment, yes, and you don't want a cable mm-hmm. around. Yep, exactly. Yep. I mean, if you're looking for the minimalist look, this thing might, might not be it. not be what. Yeah. yeah, it. It. I. I think it is the best looking trainer I have seen without a shadow of a doubt. But it is huge, and what is also huge is the price tag, which is seventeen hundred and fifty pounds or two thousand, two thousand American dollars. I. Sorry, I don't have an Aussie dollar. No, that's right. It's too big of a number to read regardless. So, uh, (laughs) Um, I do do feel like I'm missing out on a feature here as well. It's about two weeks ago that this was, I sat on the call on this. um, Yeah. So apologies if I am, but uh, one of the things I did want to mention and one of the things I asked about on the call was the fact that they've decided to include an 11 speed cassette uh, without an option for a 12 speed, which... While I appreciate all brand new bikes are equipped with 12 speed these days, or most are, Tax's point was that many bikes at home are probably still running 11 speed. I dare say anybody spending 1,750 pounds yeah. on a trainer probably has a 12 speed bike at home. And yeah. 
I could be jumping the wrong conclusions there, but I'm well, going to go out and say that. I would, I would push back on that a little bit and say anyone spending £1,700 on a trainer can afford to buy a new cassette if the trainer comes with <laughs> isn't right. Possibly, yes. <laughs> I, I might argue they shouldn't have to. I don't remember the specific details, but one of the big things that Garmin was keen to stress was their plus or minus 1% power accuracy. And that, and it's a problem that I've had with power meters for a while in that we hear this plus or minus figure bandied about and quite often it refers to a specific wattage at a specific cadence. And if it's within plus or minus 2%, then the power meter is approved for that accuracy across uh, any range of power numbers and cadence figures and, and, you know, and, and all the different permutations that you could possibly have in terms of how they match up. Uh, what Garmin or Tax or whoever have done here is effectively they've created some sort of true one percent plus or minus one percent accuracy, mm. in that they've 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 tested it across a much much broader range. Um, I'm sure friend of the podcast uh, Shane Miller GP Lama has a much more detailed video for anybody who does want more details on it. Yeah, um, this kind of more just a heads up. This thing exists, and of course another Escape Collective member Raymaker over at DC Raymaker. Mm-hmm. He, also, I know he has a video up on this because I've watched it, and he also has a video up comparing it with the new Wahoo Kicker move, which gotcha. I think off the top of my head has more movement built into it, mm-hmm. but tax definitely have a beat in terms of the aesthetics. Gotcha. Does the M in the ne- in the brand name of the, the new Neo 3M, is that is that for movement? Yes. Oh, there you go. It all makes mm. sense. I, I answered. I answered yes, like I knew, but it was only I. I couldn't remember what the M stood for until you said movement, and then I did remember. Okay, a quick one is uh, Niner Bikes, the the company whose name came from just doing twenty ers and now they're probably better known for gravel bikes. Uh, they uh, they got acquired back in I think it was 2018, 2019 by the same owners as brands such as Huffy and a few others. Uh, but yeah, they're moving. They've always been a, a Colorado-based brand and uh, have always aligned themselves with being a Colorado-based brand, uh, like many others, like such as Yeti comes to mind as a, a classic Colorado brand. Anyway, they're, they're moving. Uh, so yeah, that's going to happen pretty quickly, pretty soon. And they think business will be largely unaffected, but they're moving to Ohio. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how or if at all that changes the way the brand approaches its marketing or or its storytelling, but uh, yeah, I saw that one come up on bicycle retailer industry news, and I, I thought that was quite a a big bit of news for a brand that's for so many years just uh yeah been loyally Colorado in, in everything it does. So Ronan Classified Power Shift they have an app. Does it do anything? I can't actually answer that yet on two reasons. Uh, first of all, I. Haven't yet had a chance to download it and try it. All right, moving on. And second, <laughs> secondly, secondly, I'm waiting on confirmation on a question that I have asked uh, back to Classified in response to this news. But yes, basic details on this. Classified did introduce a new app for their PowerShift hub system. Uh, and the key features are noted as the option to assign custom action to your shifters, uh, tailor your riding experience by assigning custom actions to your shifters, providing a personalized touch to every ride. Check the battery level uh, and update firmware and create bike profiles uh, for your classified power shift system. Uh, so, I mean, update and firmware, that's obviously... That's cool, useful, yeah. That's, that's useful wherever you get that. Yeah. Checking the battery level, uh, it's sure. actually probably useful also. I'm not aware of a way you can do that otherwise, but I did have to 
charge the through axle recently just because it didn't know if it was charged or not. Uh, you can. Um, there's a little LED on the through axle that'll that yeah you can mm. push the button on the through axle, but it can be tough I, to see, tough to access, depending on how you bounce. I presume the bike, there would so. be. I just didn't yeah. really want to take the chance or yep. waste the time figuring out, so I just yep. plugged it in. Uh, the question I had for Classify was whether or not assigning custom action to your shifters, given that that's plural, shifters, mm. uh, was in reference to their own like sprint shifter button for the Classified system, or was that in relation to third-party shifters, which would suggest integration mm. for that power shifter button? Which is the thing that you and I desperately want to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This app <laughs> so, release raised raised further questions more than it, it provided solutions. But uh, hmm. yeah, I think I think there is that tease uh, with this app. So uh, I guess that's why why we bring it up is it it could it could mean other things in the art. It was confirmed back to me that the primary intention was to change the direction of the ring shifter. Gotcha. Um, yeah. But there are more options in that available yeah. through the app and. To answer my specific question on third-party shifters, I need to give them time to come back to me on that. All right, cool. Because uh, they, they didn't answer that in the email, but they said they would answer it, so I don't know what that means. Yes, okay. Uh, last on the list is uh, Bike Ahead Composites. Uh, they are probably best known for their, I think it's a four-spoke carbon wheel. You you see them race at the uh, the World Cups under the Ghost team. Uh, yeah, they, they're kind of a, a very... Uh, they stand out as far as a wheel set goes, and they, they do them for road, they do them for mountain bike. Um, Danger Home used a pair on a, a recent road build that we covered. You see them around. They, they're not necessarily ever the lightest option, but they're aesthetically appeal to some. Uh, that is, <laughs> they don't appeal to me. So, but yeah, they've, they've released a handful of new wheels, including a, a pair of wheels for cargo bike use, which is just uh, pretty funny. But uh the one that stood out to me is they've got a new mountain bike handlebar, the Wonderbar. Uh, it's very cross-country oriented. It's only 720 millimeters wide at its full width, and you can cut it down from there. Yes, Ronan, that is narrow for mountain bikes. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, why, why this stood out to me is it's got uh, integrated uh, cable channeling beneath the grip. So it's kind of designed for if you're using maybe uh, blip shifters from SRAM or if you've got like a Zerbal shifter, which is like a, an aftermarket electronic shifter, yeah, you can more stealthily run them through the handlebar. Um, but yeah, I think it's- It's designed to annoy you and James is what you're trying to say. It's designed to annoy us. I mean, I think if you're running things like blip shifters, it, it's cool not to have wires and stuff external at the handlebar. I'm, I'm for it in that regard. What worries me, though, is that this is probably a, an early example of, of handlebars designed to hide brake hoses. Uh, not that this one does, but I, I think we're, we're very quickly approaching the days of, of, uh, of James sitting in a corner crying, just saying, why couldn't they just leave the hoses outside? So, yeah, I think it's, it's coming. I, just as you're talking there, I had to look up the, uh, the cargo version of those wheels mm. and... Four-spoke, five-spoke, six-spoke wheels, yeah, they just do not appeal to me also, unless they're like the Mavic 5, you know, very aero profile, that, that's a different story on the track. Or they briefly did like a road time trial version of that Mavic 5. Yeah. I don't, maybe, they didn't, maybe they're just using track wheels, I don't know. But that aside, those sort of low-spoke count carbon options don't do it to, for me. But I think these would be pretty sick on a, on a cargo bike. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> the only reason I can think of is aesthetics. Like, I can't think mm. of another benefit to these wheels on a cargo bike. But, hey, it probably does look pretty cool. Yeah. Th this particular design, yeah, that's the only benefit I would like to 
aero optimize a cargo bike to see if you could prolong the battery life any further because some of those things just look like giant air brakes mm-hmm. um but that would involve more than the wheels so yeah i also worry that at some point you'd get obsessed enough with air optimizing it that you just like remove the bucket and turn that into an entire fairing <laughs> and then at that point you or, just i wouldn't remove it i just turn it upside down yeah and then at that point you're like just ten thousand euro away from a velomobile <laughs> yeah I, I, mm. I've, I've thought like this should be an on your mind i'm not going to go into it now yeah okay all right we'll save this one for another week uh, i'm i'm actually interested to hear in future uh yeah how you would go about aero optimizing a, a cargo bike because uh yeah mm. battery drain is a is a legitimate reason for anxiety so there's very few moments where i've been as stressed on a bike as being 10k from home and seeing i've got like five percent battery <laughs> left so all right, well, that's Geek Warning for this week, and I think for this year, actually. I think this might be the the close for 2023, and we'll definitely be back in the new year with uh, Ronan and James. Uh, but yeah, thanks for tuning in. If you haven't already, as a reminder, we're fully supported by our membership. We currently don't take advertising. We certainly don't do things like affiliate links or, or similar. So yeah, our content- We're also is- not AI. Or AI. We are real people. Yes, we're, we are real people. Although, yeah, with robotic thoughts. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, uh, our our content, this podcast, everything we write on escapecollective.com exists solely with the support of our memberships uh, and our members. So, yeah, please, if you haven't already joined, please consider doing so. Currently have a sale on where if you do join as a new member, you get yourself a free T-shirt. So, yeah, escapecollective.com forward slash Christmas. I'm just going to interrupt you a bit there because obviously at that forward slash Christmas time of year, budget can be tighter than that. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate that also. Uh, and perhaps we might just make a little ask that we're not going to just ask you to five star, blah, 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 blah. But take this episode, get the share link and send it to five other people who you know do not know about us. Yes. And we'll accept that for this, for the, for the week that's in it. We'll yes. accept that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like we're still very... We're a young business, and while I think our, our reach is pretty good given how long we've been around, it can always be better, and the more people that know about us, the more successful we can be in, in what we do, and you know, the more hires we can make, and the better we can make this. So, yeah, absolutely, signing up keeps the lights on, but more than that, word of mouth is, is the biggest thing you can do for us right now. So, yeah, thank you, Ron. I think that's a, a great thing. Yeah, if, if you can share with some friends, that that is huge for us so uh anything you can do to help us grow will will help us keep making this content well thank you it's been a great year uh looking forward Mm -hmm. to next year and ronan i'll i'll speak to you in the new year or possibly before it but either way yes happy christmas happy new year cheers bye